there's an outline in the news sheet uh, that I hope will be helpful for you as we go through, so please follow along with that and take notes if you'd like to. Uh, and it would also be helpful if you kept your Bibles open to Genesis to follow along. Uh, but before I start, let me pray for us. Gracious God, we thank you for the opportunity to come and hear your word. Uh, help me to speak faithfully and help us to hear what you would have for us. And we pray that in all things, may glory and honour be to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm sure you've all had experiences of making and receiving promises. Uh, when I was thinking about it, I actually make them every day. Uh, I almost fling them around you, all over the place, you could probably say. Uh, they might not necessarily be seen as promises, but in reality, they are. Uh, some of them are pretty small. Uh, yes, Tonya, I will put the rubbish out. Or, sure, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Uh, but promises can also be quite big, can't they? Such as wedding vows or entering into a big business contract. Uh, they can come in many shapes and sizes. They can even be something you say that you're not even being aware of as being a promise. Uh, and sometimes how we view the promise or whether we even see it as, as a promise depends on what it actually is. I mean, I started by noting what I term small promises, but really how promises are viewed depends on the importance of what is being said. I think it's fair to say, yes, dear, I'll put the rubbish out, is seen as a very different level of promise to the vows given in marriage. And how much you trust in a promise can also depend on who actually says it. I'm sure the promise from someone you value and respect is actually taken more easily and seriously than a promise from a stranger. And in reading through today's passage, it's obviously obvious that there are promises made throughout, promises that can be trusted. At the start of today's passage, we have a clear indication of who is making a promise. God makes it abundantly clear to Abram who he is. Uh, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Now in this revelation, the Lord is expressing, him, expressing himself more fully in terms of his character and attributes. You see, God refers to himself as God Almighty. Uh, in Hebrew, that is El Shaddai. And up until now in Genesis, the primary name by which the Lord has revealed himself is Elohim, meaning the God who creates and sustains nature. You see, by revealing to Abram the name El Shaddai, God is referring to himself as the God who constrains nature, the one who actually causes nature to do what is against itself. In other words, God is capable of working miracles. El Shaddai is a title in the context of today's passage, which emphasises God's infinite power. By using this term, it suggests that God is the one from whom Abram was to draw his strength from. This is a timely word. It had been 13 years since God had last spoken to Abram. Abram had spent the last 13 years living with the strife and turmoil that his sinful decision had produced in Ishmael. Now, Abram was about to learn that God's promises are fulfilled by power, the power of the all-powerful God, the all-powerful God who is also creative and nurturing. 
God is being very clear with Abram about who he is. God lays out for Abram clearly who he is so that Abram is clear about the promises that are about to come. And after revealing himself to Abram as God Almighty, El Shaddai, God then goes on to note what he expects from Abram. Walk before me and be blameless. Now the Hebrew translation of the word blameless is tamen and is also used of Noah in Genesis 6. Uh, the root meaning really translates as wholeness or integrated. So what God is saying to Abram is this. Put all of your energy into the one pursuit of walking with God. And the idea of walking is actually a really good metaphor here. It demonstrates action. It isn't passive. And it's walking before God. Lead with God. Start everything with God. Aim to please God, walk with God, and put your energy in him. Be integrated with him. Abram was to be wholly dedicated to God's cause. He wasn't free to live like the Canaanites around him, nor to be half-hearted in his service to God. But the passage doesn't stop with God telling Abram to walk before him and be blameless. There's actually a lot more to it than that. See, when you go back in Genesis and examine God's call to Abram, we can see that, in obedience to God at 75 years old, Abram left his clan, his family and land to go to Canaan and claim the promises God made to him. Uh, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So that's from Genesis 12. However, a number of challenges threatened that promise to Abram. There was a famine, a trip to Egypt, the accumulation of wealth in Egypt, the return to the promised land, there's war between kings, and the rescue of his nephew Lot, just to name a few. After about 10 years, God reaffirmed his promise to Abram in Genesis 15 and made a covenant with him that Abram would not be childless. At this point, however, Abram's wife Sarai sought to resolve the problem of her barrenness and gave her maidservant Hagar to him to bear a child on her behalf. Uh, in Genesis 16, we actually hear about how Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. And today's passage starts with Abram being 99 years old. We've had 13 years since the birth of Ishmael. It's been around 24 years since God first made his promise to Abram back in chapter 12 about making him a great nation. And here in chapter 17, God again speaks to Abram. God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. God is repeating his promises to Abram. God remembers. He hasn't forgotten. God is faithful to his promises. You see, God doesn't come back to Abram and say, sorry, Abram, you gave it a good shot. Right? You tried, but you weren't really up to it. Uh, you failed. Even though he did, that's not what God said. In fact, as God has done right through from Genesis 12, God has not only continually reminded Abram that he's not forgotten, God's actually also extending and clarifying, committing to Abram what the promise is. 
As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, uh, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you reside, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Uh, did you hear the promises God has made to Abram? He promises abundant posterity, that is, a large family. And not only a large family, but one that means kings will come from him. He promises an everlasting covenant, a promise to Abram and his family that will not end. He promises Abram the land. And he promises to be the personal God of Abram and all his descendants. They're pretty significant promises, aren't they? Abram had been waiting nearly 25 years looking forward to the promise of being made into a great nation, but not really knowing or understanding what that actually looked like. But now God Almighty is making his promises clear. And I hope you noticed a couple of things on the way through. The promises are dependent on God. God says to Abraham, I will. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. I will establish my covenant. I will give as an everlasting possession. I will be their God. But you see, there's one important distinction that I want you also to notice in what he says. You see, in verse 5, God tells Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. You see, God has done it. Not physically yet. Abram doesn't actually have the legitimate heir to God's promise. Yet. Abram can't really see any outcome or physical evidence of the promise being fulfilled. Yet. But God tells him it has happened. And to expand on that a bit more, uh, God says this in Isaiah 46, and I think this puts it in a better light. God says this, Remember this, keep it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. You see, what God says he will do is as good as done. God will do as he pleases. If God says he will do, he has done it already. God is the God who is faithful to his promises. God has made Abram a father of many nations. And we can see that too in what he says to Abram in verse 5. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. 
God confers his doing, you see, with a change of name. Abram, meaning exalted father, has his name changed to Abraham, meaning father of nations. Every time he hears his name from now on, Abraham, he will know that God has made him the father of many nations. And Sarah gets a name changed too. She'll be known as Sarah. She'll be known as princess or princess of nations. God has done it. God Almighty is the God of promises. The God who is faithful to his promises, promises you can trust. And God not only remembers his promises, he sets a covenant with Abraham to demonstrate his commitment to his promises. The covenant with which he has been confirming with Abraham for 25 years. God's covenant is about responding and obedience. From verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are about to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Um, sorry, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Uh, God is very specific here about what he expects from Abraham. Abraham's obedience on this is very important to God. In fact, Abraham's response to this will be regarded by God as an indicator of Abraham's general response to the earlier call to walk before him blamelessly. Uh, now, I don't think you're actually going to see this part uh, of the Bible portrayed in a VeggieTales episode, uh, but this is the first time that circumcision makes an appearance in the Bible. Uh, however, it's not the first time that the ritual of circumcision was practiced within the human race. Uh, other records of life in this era uh, show that there were other cultures that did incorporate this practice into their way of life. So in instituting this ritual for his people, God was not bringing into existence a new thing, but was simply making use of an existing thing already. Uh, God did the same sort of thing with Noah, taking the rainbow and using it as a sign for his people, investing it on that occasion with a particular significance. So the same thing is happening here. We don't really get a perspective on why God chose this particular ritual. It may be that God chose a sign that involved the reproductive organs of the male because at their very core, the promises from God were about a promise of descendants and ultimately about a promised seed who would eventually fulfill the prophetic words spoken to Eve in Genesis 3. And so the idea may have been there around that along with the idea of the taking away of flesh uh, which represented the taking away of the fleshly, or that is, the sinful nature. However, more important than those sort of speculations is what this sign pointed to. You see, it pointed to God's covenant faithfulness. So let me say that again. It pointed to God's covenant faithfulness. In other words, it's not a sign that was a reward to people because of their faithfulness. 
It was a sign that they received before they were faithful. It was a sign simply because of God's sovereign choice to set apart a people for himself. As such, it was to be applied to both the adults and their children, since they were included in these promises. Indeed, eight-day-old infants received the sign, obviously long before they could reason or think or even remotely respond to God in any sort of way, and before, they could make any, before anyone could make any assessment of their lives or, its relative, or their relative worth, worthiness. And it's important to look at Abraham's response to what God asks him to do. He didn't say no. He didn't say, is there something else we could do? He didn't point out to God that it was unfair because he has to do this and Noah got a rainbow. Right? <laughs> Abraham was obedient. He demonstrated what God had asked of him. Walk before God and be blameless. So from verse 23, on that very day, Abram took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham heard what God had promised. Abraham knew who was giving him the promise. Abraham responded to the promise as was expected. Now, I think it's important to note why as Christians today we don't actually continue or enforce the practice of circumcision. Uh, God, in this passage, is setting apart a people for himself. Male circumcision is only an outward sign of being set apart to God. However, if the heart is sinful, then physical circumcision is of no help at all. A circumcised body and a sinful heart are actually at odds with each other. In Romans 2, Paul writes, A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So rather than focus on external rites such as circumcision, Paul focuses on the condition of the heart. And using circumcision as a metaphor, he says that, not only, the, that only the Holy Spirit can purify a heart and set us apart for God. Ultimately, circumcision cannot make a person right with God. The law is not enough. A person's heart must change. Now, if we turn back to today's passage at the start of chapter 18, what we actually see is an old man sitting at the front of his tent in the heat of the day with unexpected visitors. Uh, have you ever had an unexpected visitor or guest? Uh, when I was growing up, I have a vivid memory of my mum receiving a phone call. It was a phone call from the new minister that had just arrived at the church, and he was just calling if he could see, to see if he could come over for a cup of tea. Uh, mum, being my mum, and wanting to put on a good show, invited him and his family over for dinner. Apparently, to my mum, it was important for her to make a good impression. Uh, for mum, it was important that we three boys and my dad were also part of this good impression. Uh, I'll be honest, uh, three boys in their early teens, uh, we don't really see the importance of that sort of stuff, do we? Uh, or necessarily care either. Uh, nonetheless, the whole house had to be clean. Everything had to be in its place. Uh, I can't really remember. I'm sure things were shoved in cupboards, doors were slammed shut so that no one could see things. Uh, the three children and their father were threatened with being on their best behaviour. Sounds familiar, probably. Um, 
Chapter 18 here today starts with unexpected guests. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. It's hot. The hottest part of the day. See, Abraham is sitting outside his tent, sort of under the front flap in the shade, trying to stay cool. It's not the time to work the herds. It's not the time to do anything. You actually leave the work for the cooler parts of the day. Uh, suddenly, three men appear. Now, if you consider Abraham is in the desert, the appearance of three men suddenly would be unusual. Firstly, Abraham would most probably have been able to see anyone coming from most directions. And secondly, if he hadn't have seen them appear, surely one of his men would have seen them come and report it to him. And yet, there they are. Abraham recognises the importance of these men, but probably not exactly who they are yet. But Abraham knows that the sudden appearance of these men is important. In fact, so important that he, as a 99-year-old man, hurries out to meet them and bows down low in the hottest part of the day and says this uh, from verse 3. If I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. Abraham recognises and responds appropriately. Uh, to a certain degree, he offers them a quick cup of tea and a butternut snap, right? But then he proceeds to provide them with the most amazing banquet possible. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sears of the finest flour, knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then bought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under the tree. Maybe not at the start when he first sees, sees them, but what Abraham eventually realises is that in an unprecedented gesture of friendship, God personally and unexpectedly comes to meet him. To be sure, he's spoken to Abraham before, and he has appeared in the form of a theophany, the fire pot and the torch, back in chapter 15. But here we have God visiting his people in a much more personal and intimate manner. In fact, this is the most intimate and personal approach of God we've seen here in the Bible so far. Here we see him for the first time taking on a human form. Now, why does God approach Abraham in this manner? It actually seems to me that he assumes this form so that he can come near to Abraham, draw near to Abraham, without Abraham being completely freaked out by his presence. Uh, therefore, he takes on this human form and in doing so demonstrates just how far he's willing to relate meaningfully to Abraham. And, and all of this, I think, reminds us that this whole thing for God is not just some grand experiment in creation, sovereignty, justice and mercy. This thing is personal. God is personally invested in what is happening here. He's not just moving pieces around on a chessboard. This is one supreme personal being 
who has made creatures in his image and invested in them personally. That he might be in a real relationship with them. That he might love and be loved. God is not just Abraham's creator and Lord. As the New Testament writer James tells us, Abraham is the friend of God. And if you look closely, you might actually notice something else. God doesn't just visit Abraham. No, you see, the promises that God has been making with Abraham are also made to Sarah. You see, God really puts in place the final piece of that father of many nations puzzle for Abraham that started in chapter 12. When he says, and this is from chapter 17. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. So that's verse 9, chapter 17. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. You see, in chapter 17, God has already explained the promise to Abraham. God has designated who... Isaac, and how, with both Abraham being his father and Sarah being his mother. And the promise is repeated here in chapter 18 for Sarah. She will share in the same promises made to Abraham. So this is from verse 9. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Uh, Did you see it? They wanted to make sure that Sarah was in earshot. They knew who she was. They knew where she was. She just needed to hear the promise for herself. If you think again about the situation that faced Abraham and Sarah, on the one hand, the promise of a child, and on the other hand, a human situation that would seem to make the fulfilment of that promise impossible. Abraham is nearly 100 years old. His wife is postmenopausal. How is this going to work out? I mean, how is this going to happen? And God's response to them is this, is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, the problem here is one of perspective. Uh, Looking at themselves, Abraham and Sarah could do nothing but think that it just could not happen. However, to look only to themselves would be the wrong thing to do. It would be to leave out the most important part of the equation, God. The determining factor as to whether anything was going to be accomplished or not was not them, but God. The question was not, is this too hard for Abraham and Sarah? The answer to that is obvious. The question is, is this too hard for God? You see, Abraham laughed when he heard that Sarah would bear him a son, a more out of joy and astonishment. 
Sarah laughed, more out of thinking of the possibility, or in reality, the impossibility of a child. But this thinking was thinking in terms of human thinking. And God's response is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Further on in Genesis 21, we can read that the promise of Isaac is fulfilled and that Sarah laughs again. So this is 21 verse 6. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Here she laughs because of joy. She laughs because she knows and sees that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for God Almighty. God has set his purposes and they will stand. So when God asks, is anything too hard for the Lord, and then goes on to do what was humanly impossible for Abraham and Sarah by giving them a child, when God does that, he's not just doing it because he can or because he has to, but because he wants to, because he has said he will do it. Will God forget his promises? I think it's quite clear that he doesn't forget. I think it's quite clear that he is faithful to his promises. And it's quite clear that you can trust in the promises that God gives. Uh, let me read to you from Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his face, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Many years after these events in Genesis, the Lord came again in human flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which this passage surely foreshadows. You see, Jesus came to earth, God's only son, God's promised son. God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the all-powerful God who can constrain nature to do his will, sent his son Jesus for us. You see, the promise from God to Abraham and Sarah was a large family, a promise made to an extremely old man and a woman with a dead womb. The promise of the impossible. The promise of a family that would produce kings from the impossible. You see, Jesus is that promise. Jesus is that king. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 20, Paul writes this, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Jesus is the ruler who we should follow. Jesus is the promised one. God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. We can trust that God fulfills his promises. We can trust in the promise giving God. And today Jesus calls us to follow him. Jesus, the promised king that God Almighty foresaw in today's passage, calls us to follow him, to follow his example, 
to walk with him. When Jesus was with his disciples, he said this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus commands us to love one another. And not just any sort of love, a love that resembles how Jesus loved us, a life-giving love. Do you love like that? Do you love your children, your family, your friends, your neighbours with a life-giving love? As followers of Christ, do you love not for your own sake, but for the sake of others? Do you have a love that sets you apart? A love that shows a circumcised heart? A love that shows others you are set apart for God? Do you pray? Do you pray to God Almighty, recognising who he is, knowing he is the one who can make the impossible possible? Do you pray like that? Do you read the promises God gives in the Bible, knowing and trusting that they are yes in Jesus? And the promise from Jesus is that we can be his friends. What an amazing promise, isn't it? The promise to be the friend of God. What a joy it is to speak freely with God Almighty, knowing he is invested in us. And as we are called to love Jesus and to be faithful to him, to trust him, we're called to love others. And as we find ourselves in the midst of difficult situations where trusting God seems foolish and even humanly impossible, we need to remember God wants to be with us, to have a relationship with us. He has set us apart for himself. That he's not only a God who is able to help us, he's a God who is willing to help us. He is a God who sent his son who willingly laid down his life for us. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You can trust in the God who not only gives great promises, but who fulfills all his promises through Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the love that you showed us through Jesus. We ask and pray that you might help us to love others, to serve others, knowing that you want to be in a relationship with them and with us. Help us to love and serve, knowing that you are God Almighty, knowing that we can come to you, knowing that your promises are true and sure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.